0: Even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW report prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.
1: Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and here's another podcast recommendation for you. It's the podcast Working Historians, and it's hosted by Robert Denning and James Fennessy. On Working Historians, Robert and James talk to historians about what they do, both in and out of academia. I find these discussions really interesting because I know what I do as a historian, but it's always interesting to see what other historians do. And it's also interesting to see what historians do outside the university setting because they actually work in a lot of different fields. Turns out historical knowledge is quite valuable. Sometimes they do author interviews, and Rob sent me one that they had done, and I thought you might be interested in hearing a sample of what you'll hear on Working
0: Historians. So here it is. Hello and
2: welcome to Working Historians, a podcast about what historians do with their lives. I am Rob Denning, the faculty lead for history for Southern New Hampshire University's global campus. We have reached a bunch of milestones lately, which has caused us to rethink the way we organize and approach these various podcast series. I started filibustering history. Almost two years ago, to help the students of Southern New Hampshire University see the diverse career paths open to them after graduation, and to give them ammunition to use when family and friends ask them why they're wasting their lives and tuition dollars on the study of history. Elizabeth Burbridge, Natalie Sweet, and James Fennessy started the Navigating History and History Soundbites podcasts around the same time as a way to discuss and share the skills of the historian and for instructors at SNHU to present their research to students and to larger audiences. Even though all of these series were on the same podcast feed, we kept them largely separated from each other until a few months ago, when we combined them under the umbrella name of Working Historians. I mentioned Milestones a few minutes ago, and we've been at this for two years now. This is our 62nd episode, if you tally up all of our recordings for all of the podcast series. That is, if I'm doing the math right, I tried to count twice and came up with different numbers, so whatever, maybe I'm off. But we are now reaching a broader audience than we ever expected, with nearly a thousand plays and downloads last month alone. More listeners now come from outside the SNHU community than from within. I have talked to lots of students and newly minted historians via social media and other places about their adventures in history-related careers, and we have lots of stories left to tell and lots of people left to talk to. Uh, We're not going anywhere for the foreseeable future. Well, kind of. James left SNHU a couple months ago for a really cool new job that must unfortunately remain secret for the time being. But he will continue to call in to our undersea pirate broadcasting station now and then to help me talk to people whenever possible. But beyond that, we're not going anywhere. So with all of that in mind, we're going to streamline and reorganize the podcast a little bit. From now on, we are going to use the Working Historians title for every episode and we will move away from the old, increasingly arbitrary dividing line between filibustering history and history soundbites. For the MBAs in the audience, I think that's Synergy? I don't know, maybe not. I I don't really know what Synergy is, but maybe. Anyway, that was a long, drawn-out explanation, I suppose. Uh, But the big picture is that we're going to be calling this Working Historians from now on, rather than the old names of filibustering history and history soundbites. Okay, so that's done. Let's move on to what everybody has been waiting for and why everybody is listening to this episode. Today, uh, James and I are talking to Brian Cervantes, an associate professor of history at Tarrant County College in Texas, who will next year publish a book titled "Amon Carter, A Lone Star Life. Today, we're going to find out just who this Amon guy was and why we should care. Welcome, Brian. Can you give us a little bit of uh, background on yourself? And then we will talk about the project.
3: Sure. uh, I've been doing history pretty much my entire adult life. I uh, majored in history at my uh, undergraduate institution, where I went to Texas Christian University. Uh, After that, I went straight into my master's and then Ph.D., and uh, earned both of those degrees at the University of North Texas, uh, up in Denton, Texas. And uh, while at UNT, I uh, primarily specialized in modern U.S. slash uh, the New South, So just kind of an American Southern historian with some a little bit more narrow focus on Texas history. Though I generally kind of fit that Texas history under the umbrella of Southern history. And so I did that uh, while I was, or after I completed my Master's, I was successful in landing a a full-time job at Tarrant County College, community college down here, primarily located in Fort Worth and uh, have been there for about uh, 13 14 years i've been teaching studying history um like i said really since i was 18 years old
2: and so given your background with texas when you were going through grad school and all that where your research focuses probably on texas and the southwest Then, anything in anything in particular
3: well, my dissertation was actually a biography of the individual we'll be talking about today, Eamon uh, G. Carter. But uh, in addition to that, um, I really concentrated a lot on uh, the Great Depression and New Deal era, both in Texas and just broadly speaking throughout the South. You know that there is quite a bit of Texas focus in there, though I don't think I would necessarily categorize myself in particular as a Texas historian if that makes sense
2: (laughs) yeah it, it does our i think our academic experience was kind of similar i went to school out in california for my ba and my ma my thesis and then later my dissertation which i did in ohio but it was it was on california uh kind of california and the broader west um focusing on themes like immigration environmental protection that kind of thing so i yeah so i think we kind of had similar backgrounds just 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 different mega states
3: Right, yeah. Yeah, I mean, a lot of my work, especially related to Carter, has been on trying to fit him into a, a larger national context as well as a regional context, both as a uh, really an example of how his particular part of Texas, Fort Worth, really is this region where South and West meet culturally, economically. Things like that, you know, it, it is kind of this, where the two regional attitudes clash, I guess is one way to put it. And, and maybe not so much clash, maybe uh, maybe meld together. And, and so his life is in many ways representative of uh, that, that meeting of South and West. So hard to really categorize him as explicitly Southern or explicitly Western. Just trying to present him as uh, kind of part of that larger phenomenon of what it means to be Southwestern.
2: Great, okay, and I look forward to kind of getting into that as as we move along here. So first off, we're talking to you because you are on the verge of publishing a book. What's the name of the book and when can we expect it to come out?
3: The book is titled "Amon G. Carter, A Lone Star Life, and uh, it's coming out in February of 2019, published by uh, University of Oklahoma Press. Something I've been uh, kind of working on with them for the last, uh, really, I guess I'd say that's been about a year and a half, almost two years. And it's been kind of a lengthy process. Uh, like I said, it was uh, originally, uh, at least at the heart of it, my dissertation. I finished Ph.D. work uh, and, and graduated with my Ph.D. In, at the end of 2011. So it's been several years, primarily since, uh, you know, like I said, I've, I've had a full-time job. My, my teaching load, you know, is, is, is you know, a 5-5 teaching load, and so... That doesn't always leave a, a lot of time for research and writing. So it didn't come out as quickly as I'd hoped, but finally completed. So very happy about that.
2: Yeah, I, I bet. I, I graduated in 2011 also. We're, we've got all kinds okay. of parallels going here. Yeah. <laughs> um, I have not gotten back to my dissertation yet. It's one of those things I keep <laughs> thinking. I, I need to get back to that. I, I should really publish that just so I can have a book out there in the world. But, you know. <laughs> yeah,
3: it's, it's one where i really had to, like, you know, take off little bites here and there. You know, it wasn't uh, something where I was able to just sit down and say, you know what, this semester I'm focusing on getting that book ready. <laughs> I hadn't right. had that luxury, so it's yeah, to taking, like I said, taking those little small bites. But you know, it's it's been an enjoyable process. i to say getting it ready for publication was not quite as painful as I feared it might be. <laughs> good, good. But I think I think it's because I had some great people to work with at uh, at OU Press. That helps, yeah. And that makes all the difference.
2: Yeah, great. I'm glad that process worked smoothly for you. So let's get into the content of the book. So who is this guy, Eamon Carter, and you know why is he significant?
3: Yeah, well, Eamon G. Carter is, is not so much a uh, nationally known name today, um, not a name you're, you're going to really hear in too many circles, unless maybe you're interested in things like Western art and something like that, since he was a major collector of the work of Frederick Remington and, and Charles Russell. Um, but in his day, and he lived uh, from 1879 to 1955, um, he was really the premier newspaper publisher in uh, in Texas, and really the Southwest. He started and ran the Fort Worth Star Telegram from uh, 1909 until his death in 1955. And in those years, uh, really by the 1920s until his death in the 1950s, The Star-Telegram was the the most widely circulated newspaper in Texas and the Southwest. And of course, this is back when uh, newspapers enjoyed quite a little bit more prestige than nowadays. Uh, Newspaper publishers obviously wielded a a great amount of influence in a variety of ways. Um, So what this did was it made Carter particularly useful in uh, the the realm of, of civic boosting. Uh, one of the things he really devoted a lot of his efforts to, in addition to running the the Fort Worth Star Telegram, was he really primarily focused on being a Fort Worth booster uh, in a lot of ways, trying to to find ways to attract businesses to Fort Worth, trying to find ways to take advantage of federal largesse whenever that was available, and, and really became kind of the singular representative of Fort Worth to uh, the rest of the United States. And so you see him hobnobbing with corporate bigwigs. He hangs out with uh, presidents like Roosevelt and Eisenhower. Uh, he becomes incredibly great friends with uh, very national figures like uh, Will Rogers things like that. So, you know, during his heyday, which was really from the 1920s to the 1950s, he was someone that Americans would have had a a basic amount of familiarity with because they would encounter him in in a variety of settings. You know, I mentioned his friendship with Will Rogers. Will Rogers wrote the most widely read syndicated column that appeared in uh, newspapers in the late 20s uh, until his death in 1935. And Carter was a constant presence in his columns. You know, Rogers would be regaling readers with some of their latest antics and actions and things like that. You know, Time Magazine did a number of profiles on him. So, you know, like I said, today, not necessarily a nationally recognized figure, but during the peak of his career, he was definitely someone a large number of Americans would have at least had some idea of who he was and and what he was about.
2: That's an interesting contrast to today, because, of course, today the vast majority of people have no idea who newspaper publishers are, and I mean, part of that might be the decline of newspapers in general, but also, there's probably other factors at play also, but it, it, it does seem to be the case that, especially back in the early 20th century, newspaper publishers were in many ways, like you said, I mean, they were civic leaders, but they were also kind of larger than life. They were... Uh, People that just common people would know about, which seems so strange from a modern perspective. But, I mean, I encountered this in my own work, reading about, you know, even even as late as the 1950s, 1960s, when you're talking about places like Los Angeles or um, Sacramento out in California, there's these names that, you know, they're not politicians, they're not, you know, they're not entertainment people, they're not actors or anything like that. So it's just crazy that people knew who all these people were, But at the same time, we have no idea who these people are today. It's a very odd change in history.
3: Yeah, I mean, they'd hesitate to maybe call them celebrities because that brings up different connotations. But these were almost celebrities in their own right. I mean, they were, uh, you know, whether you're talking about, uh, you know, Otis out in L.A. or Carter or you're talking about uh, Robert McCormick up in Chicago or obviously the most famous, you know, William Randolph Hearst. I mean, these were uh, incredibly well-known individuals that yeah like you said it that just doesn't isn't present in, in the modern world um, and so I, I I found that to be incredibly fascinating insight into the past because it is you know while it is the recent past that is a a world that that really doesn't exist anymore the, the, the idea of the, the preeminence uh, and influence of these uh, of these newspapers I, I think uh, it's kind of sad to see the uh, that era disappear. You know, there's just something I think of, about newspapers. Uh, maybe something a little romantic about it. So it is interesting to kind of see that world fade away and get replaced by, who knows what we're heading into.
2: Right. And I wonder. <laughs> and this is probably going a little bit beyond the, kind of the scope of your study of the guy. But I wonder if if that says something about general cynicism that we have today. Because when you're thinking of boosters, I mean, in in, in today's modern days. Someone that's kind of out there rah rah rahing about their city and all of that, a lot of people just kind of roll their eyes at that. But back in those earlier generations, that was you know a lot of people responded positively to that. That they are boosters, they're drawing people here, they're advertising, they're they're bringing in industry and all of that. And so it just feels like there's just been such a shift lately towards, I don't know if cynicism is the right word, but just not as that that type of thing just doesn't appeal to a lot of people anymore.
3: Like yeah, it, it really doesn't. I, I th- yeah, I think there is you know a a kind of natural reaction nowadays to this feeling that maybe people are being sold a bill of goods, you know, by these individuals. You know, that, at least that's the, the that would be the modern perception. Uh, so there would be this sense that you know maybe you really couldn't take them at their word, and and yes, clearly they're incredibly. Biased in favor of whatever community it is they're boosting. So you know if that's going to be the case, then we really don't need to take these people too seriously. But yeah, you know, like like you said in 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 the past, that that was something that was just kind of par for the course. I mean, you you would expect that your city should have its boosters out there trying to attract business, trying to encourage growth, trying to take advantage of you know whatever. Federal legislation and, and monies might be out there available uh, for your city, your community to take advantage of. So, yeah, I, I think uh, I think cynicism might actually be a, really the best way to think about it. I think there is just a cynical attitude here in the 21st century, for better or worse, and uh, that it's definitely not a world in which boosters like uh, Eamon Carter or others... Uh, could could thrive. Uh, they would they would definitely get laughed off the stage. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, right. You know there, there there are things that he does that might have raised a few eyebrows back uh, back in the day, but today would definitely make him a a figure of mockery. For example, one of the things I mentioned in my book is that he kind of adopted as his school uh, TCU Texas Christian University. Uh, even though he had no college education, had really gone no further than the eighth grade, he kind of adopted TCU as the school he would support financially and the football team he would uh, pull for. And in the 1930s, TCU was actually one of the premier football teams in the in the country. Uh, won a couple of national titles, and then mo- you know we had a couple of famous quarterbacks come out of there: uh, Sammy Baugh and Davey O'Brien. And Davey O'Brien uh, won the uh, Heisman Trophy in '38. In so Carter is this big you know, TCU supporter, booster. He goes up to New York City for the Heisman ceremonies. Somehow is able to rent, I'm not sure how he got his hands on it, but somehow rented a stagecoach and drove down Wall Street, You know, driving this stagecoach with uh, Davey O'Brien uh, right next to him. And he's like whooping and hollering, you know, just this comical kind of figure on a stagecoach on wall street you know and and you know people just kind of laughed it off and you know it's like it, there's kind of this idea well that's that eamon carter guy who's always uh, talking about west texas who wears a cowboy hat and carries pistols with him. that's just him playing this character but you know today yeah the, the, there's no way you could get away with that kind of behavior uh, especially if you're a powerful media mobile
2: right yeah you could just imagine the field day, <laughs> the daily show or Stephen right. corbett would have with that type of a snow thing yeah,
3: yeah. And, and just kind of going off on that there's actually another incident uh similar to that uh that involved hl uh, mencken hl mencken obviously incredibly acerbic uh wit of the day uh, i like to call him the um what's his name, who hosts the show on HBO?
2: Oh, oh, uh, um, Bill Maher. Uh, Bill
3: Maher. Yeah, Bill Maher. How am I freaking that? <laughs> like, I'm like, <laughs> right there. I was like, it's not Bill Murray. I know it's an Eminem. Yeah, right. yeah. you know, uh, M- Minkin's kind of that, uh, you know, uh, Maher type of uh, character. Um, and so Minkin comes down to Texas for the 28th uh, Democratic Convention, which is going to be hosted down in Houston. As a, you know, big shot writer, he stops off in Fort Worth on the way down and, kind of links up with Carter. And Minkin in in his writings and his memoirs, you can definitely sense that he's not a real big fan of Carter. You know, uh, Minkin was not the kind of guy who's going to fall for any boosting efforts of any kind. So he he links up with Carter in Fort Worth, takes a train down to Houston with him, um, and it's very clear from Mencken's memories of the whole event, that that he was just not real happy on the trip down. Uh, He just didn't like hanging out with Carter that much, um, apparently. So either way, they get down to to Houston for the uh, Democratic Convention, and Mencken reports that uh, Carter had uh, arrived uh, at the hotel in Houston, the Rice Hotel, with, in his words, an immense stock of liquors. You know, obviously it's 28 prohibition era, but you know it's not going to stop Carter from having kept a nice stockpile of alcoholic beverages. So right. apparently,
2: a Texan's not going to just agree yeah, to that. Yeah, yeah,
3: he, he's not. <laughs> um, so apparently, while he was here at the hotel, uh, at, at one point, for whatever reason, apparently he was frustrated um, at waiting too long for the uh, elevator in the hotel. It was just a single passenger elevator. You know, it's the only one in the in the hotel. It's moving slow. You know, everybody's crowding in here because it's, you know, Democratic conventions in town. And just out of frustration, he pulled out his pistol, Carter did, and fired shots at the uh, at the glass door of the, of the elevator. You know, you'd expect something like that would get him arrested. But law enforcement were like, oh, ah, well, nobody got hurt, so uh, just don't do that again. <laughs> And so Minkin is like in shock because he sees this whole thing just unfolding in front of them. And then soon after that, uh, Carter is hanging out in Minkin's room and apparently maybe under the influence uh, pulls out his pistol and, and fires a few shots out of the hotel room window. Uh, bullets hit the hotel across the street uh, apparently near a room where the Ku Klux Klan was having a meeting <laughs> <laughs> um, and so you know obviously this raises you know raises quite a bit of a hullabaloo over this you know more shooting and you know Carter like very quickly puts his gun under the mattress and slips out before uh, law enforcement arrives and the, the Rangers come in because they figure out the Texas Rangers were, were there as law enforcement they arrive they walk into Mencken's room because they're like, hey, clearly this is where the shots came from. And they arrest H.L. Mencken. <laughs> you know? And, and Mencken's like, you know, it wasn't me. It was that Carter guy. And and Carter, you know, comes in and tries to, you know, settle the situation. And uh, so what he he tells the Rangers, look, if y'all arrest Mencken, you know, it's going to make Texas look ridiculous to the rest of the country. You know, he's known as this peaceable, virtuous character by millions of people. You know, clearly the shooting had to have happened when uh, Minkin was in the bathroom. Probably some enemy of the Klan slipped in, (laughs) fired shots out of the window. You know, maybe like when Minkin was flushing the toilet and, you know, the Rangers are like, well, you know, know, I guess that could be true. They searched the room. There is no weapon. And so (laughs) the whole thing, you know, ended. You know, so Minkin's just reeling from this whole event. And in his mind, it just reinforces this image that uh, of carter that he had that he's just this you know buffoon of a cowboy it doesn't uh, say
2: much about the texas rangers either no,
3: it really doesn't <laughs> uh, no gun in here i don't see it you know it's not hanging on the wall so well, I, I, guess, uh, I guess i guess it, guess it could it have been while he was in the bathroom <laughs> <laughs> um you know and so that's 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 the national image that he gets you know and this is You know, like I said, this is when Mencken is kind of at the peak of his powers, and so when he's writing about this, you know, at about the same time that Rogers is, you know, writing tales of his experiences with Carter, you know, that that makes Carter, you know, nationally known. I I wouldn't necessarily say famous, um, but he's definitely somebody that your average American, you know, reading the newspaper would have a decent idea of of who Carter was and, and what kind of figure he was. The thing is, is, you know, there was a previous uh, kind of building on, on Carter's character here. There, there was a, a There is a pre-existing biography of Carter uh, that came out in the 70s, but it wasn't a scholarly biography by any stretch. And in addition, really the author presented Carter as, as mainly just like this buffoonish cowboy. Clearly, you know, with these kinds of antics, you know, how else could you think of him? But what I really try to show in my biography is that, you know, much of this is very much calculated by Carter. You know, he knows when to play the buffoon. He knows when to put on that cowboy image, uh, but he also knows uh, when to play hardball. You know, he knows how to get the businesses that he wants in Fort Worth, you know, here. He, he knows how to work with the Roosevelt administration to get uh, money you know, from various New Deal projects, you know, so... It's more of a uh, calculated effort as opposed to just a, a natural part of his personality.
2: Cool, well, and I actually want to follow up on that for a sec, but just mention that uh, James is here. Hello. Oh, glad to have you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Hello. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Finally
0: got through that traffic, huh?
3: Survived traffic.
0: Glad to have you here. <laughs> Thanks. I walked into the middle of a story that I had no context for or idea what was going on, and <laughs> I really enjoyed the visuals of of this crazy person riding down Wall Street whooping and hollering <laughs> and setting up his own personal bar in his hotel room. I think, that, uh, I, think yeah. I got that right.
3: <laughs> yeah, pretty yeah. well, it, it pretty much was a uh, mobile bar that he carried with him wherever he wanted to go.
0: <laughs> Even better. <laughs> yeah, I
3: actually uh, came across you know one of the uh, many thousands of papers that are collected in the archive at TCU. Um, a, a couple of sheets of paper from... I think this was just immediately after Prohibition, but it was a, a list of the uh, liquor stockpile that he kept, uh, and it was massive. I mean, uh, he he definitely, before Prohibition went into effect, uh, put a lot of effort into seeing how much he could set aside to, uh, to last him throughout Prohibition. And who knows, you know, some of this might have also been acquired uh, under the table during Prohibition, who knows. He obviously didn't keep records of that. <laughs> But yeah, I think it's safe to say that that some of these behaviors of his probably would not have occurred without the benefit of, of imbibing a few beverages beforehand.
2: That always seems to help with yes with that kind of that whole generation. I mean, this guy came a little bit earlier, but it, it makes me think of LBJ in Texas, and I'm sure they pro- I'm sure they probably crossed paths at some point during their careers. But then also, oh, out in California, you had Jesse Unra, who was the um, his nickname was Big Daddy, <laughs> <laughs> and um, he was renowned for drinking and partying, and but at the same time was held up as one of the you know, boosters for, he was a politician, but he was still a booster for California and all of that. And so yeah, I kind of miss those days. But at the same time, that role today would probably look a lot like, I don't know, Donald Trump or something today. <laughs> so it's a very different world we live in.
3: Yeah. The, the, you know, uh,
0: come to well, think wouldn't of it, it look true. like Rick Perry.
2: Yeah, that might be it, too. But they,
0: yeah. <laughs> Perry, Maybe we just haven't heard enough about Perry's uh, personal life to understand that his insanity <laughs> stems from an, a love of alcohol and just a general crazy outlook on life.
2: Yeah, but he's got the whole moral crusader thing going on. These yeah. these other guys, they didn't even pay lip service Car- to moral Carter crusaders. didn't even just, care. Yeah.
3: Yeah, Carter cared zero for any of that, uh, yeah. for any of that element. <laughs> yeah, over
2: yeah. A, Uner that I was talking about was the guy who first made the quote where it's like, um, for when it comes to like dealing with lobbyists and all that, and he's like, if you can't, you know, drink their booze and blank their women, and then vote against them, then what are you doing in politics? He's like, (laughs) (laughs) that's just that type of guy that just doesn't care one bit about any moral crusades.
3: (laughs) It
0: was a simpler time.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, the moral majority, uh, Carter would never have been a part of that. You, you mentioned LBJ, though. That was actually, for a while, a, a pretty strong friendship and partnership between the two of them. Carter had really come out strongly in, in support of LBJ back when LBJ first ran for the Senate in uh, in 1941 and uh failed attempt by Johnson, but they, they formed a really close partnership in all of that. And, and Carter, I think from his perspective, felt that he was maybe taking Johnson under his wing. Johnson, of course... You know, was not the kind of politician who was going to remain under anybody's wing. <laughs> so, you know, Johnson does end up breaking free, if you will, of, of Carter by the early 1950s. Uh, and that actually created a, a bit of a rift between the two of them. And you know, Johnson just did not vote the way Carter wanted on some things, and Carter, like, called, called off the friendship. Just completely severed uh, that, that relationship that he had uh, with Johnson. Um, which actually apparently uh, bothered both Lyndon and Lady Bird. She called it one of the the saddest episodes of of that period uh, of the Johnson's life, was just Carter just completely cutting them off because of supporting a few things that that Carter didn't want him to support. But nevertheless, there for about a decade, they were incredibly close, and Carter did, did try to take different uh, members of congress under his under his wing if he could because he figured he could you know they could be useful for him in a variety of ways uh, but once they had outgrown or outlived their usefulness then he was not afraid to uh, cut them off
1: slash nbn50 to get 50% off.
2: I just wanted to correct my quote from uh, Jesse Unra. It's uh, the proper quote is, uh, if you can't eat their food, drink their booze, blank their women, take their money, and then vote against them, you've got no business building <laughs> up here. That's California politics for the 1950s, <laughs> my 60s, wow. I guess. fantastic. Yeah, <laughs> that, was, that was my dissertation era. That guy was amazing to, to study.
3: That's a Republican virtue, right? Uh, as uh, the the founders would have called it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, not so much.
2: All right, and so you kind of touched on it a little bit, but uh, so his politics, Carter. He was a Democrat. He kind of traveled in circles, but you know, back in those days, Democrat Republican it was the, the partisan lines weren't as clearly drawn as they are today. And so there were a lot of kind of politics getting mixed up, and both parties agreed on a lot more things than they agree on today. And so if Carter is kind of this booster, he must be appealing to people on all sides of the aisle, I imagine. He's probably putting up his best front to try to get everybody possible to be involved here. So do you did you see him kind of like, not flip-flopping, but, you know, kind of being open to all comers kind of a thing?
3: Well, you know, when Carter is at his peak, it's a, it's a period where Texas is still very much a one-party state. Um, the Republican Party is is in shambles for okay. um, really most of the 20th century, really up until the, not until the 1960s and the 70s, does the, does, does the Texas Republican Party really begin to solidify and, and gain any real support. So for him, he had the luxury, I guess you'd say, of, of just being able to be a Democrat and not have to worry about anybody on the other side of the aisle. Uh, but, but that said, during the 1920s, when you have those Republican administrations, especially of, of Coolidge and Hoover, you know, Carter did try to make nice with them uh, as much as possible. You know, as partisan as he was, he at the same time wasn't about to go out of his way to antagonize Republican administrations just because you know you never know when these kinds of individuals could be useful so for example there toward the end of Harding's term in office Carter works closely with um, Hoover as Secretary of Commerce to uh, get a, a radio station up and running and that would serve as the radio arm of the Star Telegram and uh, Hoover was actually the one who ends up naming the radio station he he gave it the call letters of WBAP uh, which stood for we bring a program and that was one of the first radio stations uh, west of the Mississippi River, and it was a had a very strong signal, so it was the, a radio station you would hear uh, not just in Texas but in some neighboring states. So it was a way for Carter to really extend the the reach of the Star Telegram. But you know he he needs politicians to do thing like do things like that for him, so he, he's not really going to be too antagonistic towards Republicans when. Roosevelt, you know, wins in 1933, Carter really went into overdrive, uh, cultivating a relationship with with Roosevelt. He was assisted in this by the fact that one of Roosevelt's uh, children, uh, one of his sons, Elliot, actually lived in Fort Worth at the time. Elliot Roosevelt had married a a local girl, and so they they were living here, and so Carter is able to get direct access to Franklin, through his son, Elliot, and he's, he's definitely not afraid to, to use that channel as much as possible. So uh, one of the things that he really pursues is getting variety of, of funding for different projects locally. He helps secure PWA and RFC funding of a uh, major complex in the city that ends up being named after Will Rogers because uh, it's, it's built right after Will Rogers died in in 35 in a plane crash um, and so he, he secures you know around a million dollars for the construction of this complex that would serve as the, the place to house a long-held local stock show uh, it's called the, the Southwestern Exposition and Fat Stock Show you know basically it's kinda like you know a state fair type thing But nevertheless, you know, secured New Deal funding for all of the buildings that would house that. Funnily enough, that that wasn't really something that all members of the Roosevelt administration were happy about. This request, since a lot of it was for PWA funding, had to go through Harold Ickes, who was the head of the Public Works Administration and was notoriously a little bit tight-fisted with the, the money. And he took to just mocking this whole project, uh, and called the, and called it uh, Amon's cow sheds. You know, why do we want to spend a million dollars on Amon's cow sheds? You know, this is pointless. But Carter again has this direct route to uh, Franklin Roosevelt. Carter is also pretty good friends with Jesse Jones, who was the head of the RFC, RFC, the Reconstruction Finance Corporation close friends with Vice President John Nance Garner and so you know he's able to outnumber someone like Harold Ickes and so he he gets the the money he needs for this major construction project so the desire to get those kinds of of dollars flowing into Fort Worth during the Depression definitely gave Carter an incentive to stay on uh, Roosevelt's good side at the same time Carter was not uh, afraid to criticize some parts of, of the New Deal that he thought, at least in his perspective, went too far, I mean, especially in Roosevelt's second term. You know, R- 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 Carter really thought that uh, the Roosevelt administration had become too pro-labor, for example, so he, he was not afraid to criticize Roosevelt for that. But at the same time, he was always careful to couch his criticism in a way to where it would not cost him access. You know, and and this, at the same time, you know Roosevelt, as much as he might not like that kind of criticism, understood that Carter was useful. You know, like I said, Carter had the most widely circulated, most widely read newspaper in Texas. That's not really uh, a newspaper you want turning against you too much. You know, so Roosevelt is not going to go out of his way to, you know, maybe push Carter away from him. So um I I think both Roosevelt and Carter understood that there was something they needed from the other individual you know Carter needed the money from the new deal and Roosevelt needed the the political support so they're they're willing to overlook whatever differences they have in order to make sure they get what they feel is in their best interests
2: that also probably goes to something we were talking about back at the very beginning of all this when we were talking about boosters not being as welcome today as they were back then but of course you just bring up a good point that this is happening during the great depression and so yeah i'm sure anybody to most people i'm sure it was like anybody that's bringing bringing work here or bringing money here more power to them we're not gonna we're not gonna (laughs) walk them out of the room like we possibly would today we're a bit more affluent all around so we're probably not so now we don't really care all that much about it but back then it's like hey he brought some jobs let him don't don't mock him. Keep him
3: going. <laughs> There's a lot more at stake. Yeah. And, and you know he he keeps doing that during World War II. Carter was actually someone who was pretty pro-American involvement even before we got involved in the war. You know he he definitely was not part of uh, any kind of isolationist wing of the Democratic Party. Um, so he was pretty happy when we got into the war, and he was able to use his. You know, already existing connections with the Roosevelt administration to you know help ensure that more monies would be flowing in to the city, uh, especially when it came to putting the uh, economy on a wartime footing and building up, uh, you know, that that arsenal of democracy. So uh, one thing that uh, Carter is successful in getting is a consolidated aircraft plant constructed in Fort Worth, which at the time that it was built, it was it was the longest building. In the uh, the country, Carter made sure like several inches were added to the length of it to make it the longest building in the country at the time. That was the kind of person he was. <laughs> um, but, you know, you, you've probably all seen that image of B-24 liberators being constructed in World War II. It's just this, yeah, as far as the eye can see, these B-24s uh, that was here in, uh, in Fort Worth at the consolidated uh, plant i mean you know that provided construction or uh jobs for you know thousands of of individuals as a matter of fact uh my great-grandfather worked as an upholsterer at the uh the consolidated plant in world war ii something i actually didn't find out until fairly recently but you know so something that you know locals you know they looked at that and, and and in their eyes when they see that consolidated plant constructed and you know when whenever it's completed you know, they see that really as as an example of Carter and, and his devotion to the community. So he, he definitely was a figure that at least locally was seen as as really a, a giant in the in the community. And you know, they you know most Fort Worthians weren't really going to be too critical of him because I mean to be honest, by the uh, end of the 40s, early 50s, I mean there were estimates that one in four Fort Worth workers had a job primarily working at a place that was here because of Carter's efforts.
2: Is there anything any big themes in your book or in your research that we haven't touched on yet?
3: Well one thing I really try to incorporate throughout the book is really trying to provide some answer to the question of is Carter and therefore by extension Fort Worth you know a southern or a western city? In the present day worth it tries to present itself as very much a a, a Western oriented city as a matter of fact the slogan of the star telegram which which Eamon Carter put there in, in the early 1920s was that Fort Worth was where the West begins part of it kind of hidden in that is kind of mockery at Dallas that Dallas is where the East Peters out as they put it and the so Fort Worth is where <laughs> the West begins yeah, okay. um, <laughs> nevertheless you know there is that sense of, of, of a Western identity and so, you know, in, in looking back at, at Carter and, and, and really just kind of this city that he's operating in, I'm trying to figure out, you know, is that really the case? You know, is this a Western city or, you know, are there more Southern elements to it than, than people want to talk about? And, of course, when you're talking about Southern identity, especially in the first half of the 20th century, you're primarily thinking of, of things like race, right? Jim Crow, segregation, disfranchisement. And, and and one thing that we, we do see is that Fort Worth was very much a, a southern city in that regard. You know, it might have a western orientation in a lot of ways, and it might have connections to that western past as a, a city of cattle and things like that. Um, but, you know, there, there, there was a very much a, a strong southern element to its identity because it was a city where Jim Crow was just as much a part of uh, of the city as it was in any other city in Texas or other parts of the South. And so what I, one thing I, I did look at is how Carter fit into that. Uh, you know, one thing that we, we do see is that Carter definitely does not buck that system by any stretch of the imagination. Um, he's just like many other white residents of Fort Worth at the time. He just he accepts segregation, and in, in his eyes, it's kind of the natural order of things. You know, there, there are things that he just kind of takes for granted that that you know we would be shocked by today. For example, in 1913, uh, there was a horrific lynching in Dallas, and, and Carter hops on the little interurban railway that connected Fort Worth to Dallas at the time, and. Goes over there and covers the uh, the event, you know, and then then very quickly gets a special edition of the Star Telegram printed out, talking about this lynching and and publicizing this lynching, and then he goes out and on his own, you know, starts selling newspapers in Dallas and surrounding communities to try to get the news of this lynching out before everybody else did, and and just the kind of casual manner in which he does this illustrates that. In his mind, this was just, you know, it was a lynching. There there was nothing particularly horrifying about the event. Uh, Yes, it was newsworthy, but not newsworthy in the kind of way in which you would be critical of it. So in that sense, you know, Carter was very much a a southerner. There is another moment in in the 1920s which reveals that southern identity, uh, if you will, of Carter. He's on the Pennsylvania Railroad on, on a train, Traveling with one of the most widely read syndicated columnists of the twenties, a guy by the name of O. O. McIntyre, he had a syndicated column that appeared in you know hundreds of newspapers at the time. And Carter is not pleased with how one of the uh, African American waiters on the train speaks to him, and he just gets up and he slaps the uh, the the waiter so hard the guy falls into uh, into Amon Carter's seat, and Carter just kind of. You know, for Carter, that was just how you handle things. Interestingly enough, oh, McIntyre, even though he was definitely not a Southerner, in, in some of his correspondence with Amon after the fact, uh, McIntyre doesn't seem to be too shocked by the whole thing. And so it's incredibly eye-opening um, to to see that kind of of, of behavior. You know, here's uh, you know someone who you know on the surface presents this very Ebullient, effusive, outgoing personality, rah-rah boosterism, but you know at the same time is not afraid to you know, do his part to enforce uh, segregation. But then at the same time, you know as he gets older, I, I wouldn't say that Carter softens, but he does begin to present himself as more of a a paternal kind of figure for the African-American community in Fort Worth. So providing funding for parks in African-American neighborhoods, things like that. Going out of his way to help provide relief for uh, local African-Americans after a a particularly uh, horrific flood of the Trinity River in 1949. You know, so in a sense, by the end of his life, it seems that Carter... May have softened a little bit of the edges as far as his attitude uh, towards race was concerned. But at the same time, he wasn't going to do anything to that. He was not going to do anything that would weaken segregation or Jim Crow. You know, they think he'd really arrived at this attitude that, you know, as long as they, you know, quote, know their place, then yes, I can play that more paternalistic kind of role in in the lives of of local african-americans so i did that's something i definitely tried to incorporate throughout throughout my book was was looking at, at those racial attitudes and how they changed or didn't change throughout his life and against that whole backdrop of race relations in general in this part of texas
2: interesting that you're bringing up the kind of the desire to pursue a Western identity instead of a Southern identity. Again, an- another parallel to California is that in a lot of my schooling was on Western History, not just U.S. history, but Western U.S. history, and so there's this there's always been this kind of long-running thread of conversation among historians and among boosters and all of that about whether you know what is the West, what is the region I, of the West, is it does Texas count as the West, does California count as the West? I mean, obviously from a geographic perspective, sure, California it's the West Coast, so sure it fits with the West. However. There is so much that's different about california and about texas because california doesn't look a whole lot like utah or you know nevada or some of the other far western states that are easily definable as the west california's got a much more diverse environment a much more diverse economy much more diverse people a lot more people california's kind of the same or sorry texas kind of the same thing it's got a lot more people it's much more populated than what we kind of envision as the west so it's it's interesting to see that play out with texas is that they're embracing their southerness but they're also pursuing their westernness if that's a word
3: (laughs) yeah oh yeah and then that's definitely um a theme that a lot of texas historians are picking up today especially as relates to uh for example the texas centennial back in 1936 that's where you really begin to see a, a huge effort aimed at seeing texas more as a western as opposed to a southern state And really a lot of it goes back to those southern themes that that really end up coming back to defeat and despair at the end of the Civil War. Well, that's not exactly the kind of triumphant vision that Texans wanted to adopt for themselves as they're celebrating the Texas Centennial. So what do you see? You see a lot of efforts aimed at cultivating a more westward-oriented vision of the past because that did seem at the time to be a much more um, triumphant vision. you know it was a, it was a vision of, of victory and progress as opposed to you know emphasizing this you know, lost cause and memory of defeat. Right. Um, so you know I, I think a lot of present day Texas's identity as Western, though you know most Texans might not be aware of it, it's definitely deliberately cultivated you know in, in the 1920s and 30s. It's not something that was just kind of organic.
2: Right. Yeah, it's yeah. it's hitching your cart to a vic- to like you said, to a victory because, you know, the the victory over the Native Americans and all of that. It's also kind of the West with the conventional wisdom of the West as a place of constant reinvention. You're not tied to the past. You're kind of blazing into a glorious future you know resources be damned people there be damned whatever but you're gonna um but it's 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 a place of newness I mean even going all the way back to you know Frederick Jackson Turner and his his whole the- uh, frontier thesis and all that where people are reinventing themselves on the west you reinvent democracy you reinvent industry you reinvent your your self-image you completely reinvent yourself you reinvent your country you reinvent your your city so it, it does make sense especially like you said you're trying to get out from under the cloud of the lost cause and the cloud of the loss of the civil war and all of that it certainly makes sense to try to grab onto something that's that's new and victorious and something that can kind of drag you out of the past so to speak
3: yeah and you don't you know throughout carter's you know correspondence you you never really get much of a sense that he's even all that aware of the civil war um you know, it's just it's just not a cloud that lingers over him in any way, shape, or form. But he definitely is obsessed with the West, um, which explains the, the last thing I, I guess I'll mention about uh, the book and Carter is you know when he gets incredibly wealthy in the 1930s thanks to uh, wildcatting, you know independently discovering oil in West Texas, um, he uses a lot of that wealth you know, partially for philanthropy. You know, he he was real philanthropic in a variety of ways. But he also devoted a lot of efforts to collecting uh, the art of Frederick Remington and Charles Russell, You know, because he really loved their mythic vision, portrayal of the West, conquest of the West. And so he amassed a, a huge collection of their art. And then uh, in his will, he, he stated that he wanted a museum to be uh, established uh, that would be permanently free to the public to showcase his art. Um, and so, you know, we have a, a museum, the Eamon Carter Museum, which uh, used to be called the Eamon Carter Museum of Western Art, but now it's just devoted broadly to American art. Um, but but the, the centerpiece of that collection is a large collection of Remington and Russells, you know, that, that really you know, fit in what what Carter thought the West was like or what it should have been like.
2: That sounds awesome. Well, in a way, it sounds awesome. <laughs> from a historical perspective, it from, sounds awesome. I don't know about yes. from a historical perspective. It's
3: awesome. <laughs> Definitely. So, I mean, I would just say, you know, it's it's kind of funny, you know, your California connection. You, you would kind of assume that, that Carter might, you know, have a, a fascination with California. But interestingly enough, he didn't really have that kind of fascination with California. He, he uh, in a lot of ways, he was very oriented toward places like Chicago and New York. In Washington, D.C. So, you know, I, I never really understood why, you know, someone like Carter wouldn't really see California as uh, another example of the kind of place he envisioned the West should be.
2: And California has always been kind of troublesome in that, but I wonder if... And you would know this better than I would, but I wonder if maybe it's just because of his attraction to power and influence in California back in the 30s and 40s. I mean, California, you know, ever since the Gold Rush has been has been kind of a special part of the country, but it also really wasn't the seat of power really until after World War II.
3: Yeah, that that's, that 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 definitely is is true. So that yeah, gravitates toward the seats of power. He already he already has the opportunity here. He doesn't need a place like California for that. Right. Yeah. <laughs> California
2: would be like a lateral. Starting
3: move.
2: all over again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, that's that's great. Well, this is a really cool topic, and I really look and I, I look forward to reading the book. This sounds like there's a, If if any of the stories you've been telling here are in there, then I'm looking forward to uh, to, to those stories. So thank
3: you very much for uh, joining us today. And thank you for having me. Enjoyed the the whole conversation.
0: Definitely. Sorry that I showed up a bit late, but um, <laughs> it was enough of a teaser to make me go out and buy the book.
3: <laughs> I'll I'll make sure to, to uh, share y'all uh, share with you all the Amazon link when that becomes available.
2: Nice. <laughs> Is it up on your the publisher's link uh, site yet, Dina? You know?
3: Um, not just yet. At least not that they have shared with me. I just actually went through the whole proofing process um got my proofs back to them um last month index back to them last month so now just sitting and waiting yeah. um so i, I assume uh, it'll be up on their site within uh, a month or two
2: okay well yeah when you get but, that yeah, uh, yeah, yeah share all that with all you, that. you
3: all yeah
2: i'll put it up on the uh you know i, I put it up in the episode notes and the um what do you call that thing? Twitter. That's what you call it.
3: <laughs> I'll put it up on there, too. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you so much. No, thank you. This was great. It was I, good to meet you. Um, enjoyed talking to both of you and meeting with you all. And
2: Yeah, this is so. great. And thank you all for joining us today. If you have any questions or comments on this podcast or suggestions for future episodes, as always, send me an email at workinghistorians at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter at filibusterhist. Although that will probably have to change with all this rebranding. Well, that's a problem for another day. Anyway, for James Fennessy and Brian Cervantes, I am Rob Denning. I'll see you in two weeks.
0: It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper?